Welcome to the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast. I'm Isaac Graves. Today's conversation features award-winning journalist Alec McGillis on his book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. Joining Alec in conversation is ASBN co-founder and CEO and co-founder of 7th Generation, Jeffrey Hollander. Fulfillment is a New York Times book review editor's choice selection and investigates Amazon's impact on the wealth and poverty of towns and cities across the United States. Fulfillment is not just another inside account or expose of our most conspicuously dominant company. Rather, it is a literary investigation of the America that falls within the company's growing shadow. With empathy and breadth, McGillis demonstrates the hidden human costs of the other inequality, not the growing gap between the rich and poor, but the gap between the country's winning and losing regions. The result is an intimate account of a contemporary capitalism, its drive to innovate, its dark, pitiless magic, its remaking of America with every click. Before we dive into today's program, we at the American Sustainable Business Network would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Hanson Bridget. Hanson Bridget has been a proud sponsor of ASBN for over a decade, and it is an industry-recognized California-based law firm with an expansive platform of legal services and broad base of clients emerging, exporting, or conducting business in the region. Hanson Bridget serves a diverse client list, including large national and global companies, including many sustainable businesses, impact investors, and any company looking to structure their investments to generate social and environmental impact alongside a financial return. Learn more at HansonBridget.com, H-A-N-S-O-N-B-R-I-D-G-E-T-T.com, or have ASBN connect you with their sustainable business and impact investing practice group. And now let's begin our discussion. Jeffrey. Thanks. 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 Happy to be here. Pleasure to chat with you, Alec. It's, it's going to be a great conversation about an incredibly important set of issues. And uh, just to get us started, I just want to reflect on an interview that you did uh, with uh, Anand Girahadis recently. Mm-hmm. And I, I, was very impacted by his book as well, uh, Winners Take All, when he talked about how many of us are complicit in creating the problems that we're stuck. And, and I must say that I have a relationship with Amazon. What I know about them and what I learned in your book tends to make me hate them. And yet I almost have a little bit of an addiction to shopping there. And I hope that you'll help people perhaps sort out that conflict uh, in our conversation today. But let's just begin uh, by having you give us an overview on what is One Click America and why is Amazon so critical to understanding it? Sure. Well, well thank you so much to, to, to all of you for having me on and, and, and Jeff for, for, for moderating this. Um, really glad to be here with this audience. I um, this, this book, actually, this book about One Click America actually started as a book not about Amazon at all, really. I've been wanting for years to do a book about the growing disparities in this country, the, the regional inequality that I saw um, on display as I went all around the country as a reporter, going all the way back to you know, basically the, the 2008 election, which I was covering for the Washington Post, and then covering the Great Recession and the years following. And I would go out um, to the Midwest or to Appalachia or other parts of the country and just be struck by the incredible struggles on display um, in, the, in these towns and cities that were really kind of falling behind in our new economy. And then I'd come back to Washington, D.C., and I'd just be overwhelmed by the prosperity on display there. Uh, Metro D.C. had barely been touched at all by the Great Recession, if anything, got even wealthier um, in those years. And, and there was such a sense of complacency and disconnect from what was happening around the country. And, and that really bothered me. And I been, you know, watched it happening again and again over the second decade of the century. And then Trump got elected in 2016 and became clear just how much these regional disparities were playing into our, into our politics and having a distorting effect on our, on our politics nationally. And I thought, I need to write about this. And, and I decided to come at these disparities, um, which are bigger than they've ever been. We've, never, we've always had richer and poorer places in this country, but never to the degree we have now. And, um, and they're, they're unhealthy for both places. They're unhealthy for the left behind places, but they're also not good for the winner take all cities that are dealing with affordability problems and displacement and loss of character and all of that. 
I decided to come at that problem through the lens of Amazon, to use Amazon as the frame um, for two reasons. One is that the company is just so ubiquitous now in our life that it's a handy thread to take you around the country, to show you what we're becoming as a country, to show you what our one-click kind of life looks like um, on, a, on a daily basis. Uh, but then it's also um, a good frame to use because the company is itself contributing to this regional disparity, to these, to these, these inequalities. Um, and we can talk about this more later, but in a very basic way, the company, like the other tech giants, is kind of hoovering up a lot of daily commerce and business activity used to be spread around the country and kind of drawing it into just the, the handful of cities where, 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 where it's based. Um, so you end up with essentially a headquarters cities like Seattle and now Washington, D.C., getting ever wealthier, ever more unaffordable, um, and, then, and then a whole bunch of sort of left-behind warehouse towns, and kind of bifurcation of the, of the national landscape in that way. Um, and, it's, and so that's why, why I chose Amazon as the frame, because this problem of regional concentration of wealth in one-click America is very linked to the concentration of our economy in just a handful of companies. So, Alan, so, you're suggesting, if I understand you correctly, that Amazon and perhaps other companies as well are playing a significant role in this income disparity that is having such a horrible effect on our economy and country? Yes. They're, they're far from the only, only driver of it. Some of these, you know, these, these trends have, have been going back decades and, and it's tied up with, with all, you know, all manner of, you know, the, the, the globalization, the decline of, decline of manufacturing, um, technology, all sorts of larger forces that are, that are at play here. But, but, but what the book suggests in a sort of implicit way, not an not a explicitly argued way, but an implicit way, is that these regional inequalities that are so unhealthy for the country, um, this incredible concentration, growing, growing concentration of wealth and prosperity and dynamism in just a small handful of cities in this country is, is, is tied uh, partly, maybe even great part, with, to the concentration of our economy in a handful of, of, of giants that are growing ever more dominant. And that this past year, of course, grew more dominant to a degree that I couldn't even have imagined when I started out, set out to write this book a few years ago. Yeah. So against that background, I mean, I think Amazon would consider itself a responsible business what, what do they think their role is in society and their contribution to these problems? Uh, yeah, I spoke at length with the company, of course, um, last year. And their basic, they have a couple basic responses to this and sort of how they see themselves. One, one is that they, they see their role as, as, as a sense, this sounds kind of fatalistic, but they really see themselves as simply filling a role that any other company could be filling if, if it hadn't been Amazon first, that there, that essentially there've been all, all, all these larger forces, globalization, technology, e-commerce, there was going to be some company that was going to become the dominant force in e-commerce. It just happens to be them. There was sort of various, you know, um, happenstance and, you know, Jeff Bezos's business acumen and brilliance and foresight, it became Amazon. Um, but, but that it's that's all about the larger forces and and so they they say you know yes we know that these jobs these warehouse jobs are not ideal they're not great the greatest jobs in the world but that's just sort of where where this economy has ended up right now and 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 it just happens to be us who are providing these jobs the that's that's one level of their of their kind of argument then another level is when there's in a somewhat more kind of boosterish PR mode, it is it is to say, look, these are tough jobs. Um, we know they're you know they're very taxing and all that, but they're at least they're they're jobs, and we're bringing jobs to to all these communities uh, where these warehouses have a couple of thousand jobs at a pop. Um, unlike Google and Facebook, who who concentrate wealth in the Bay Area as they suck up all this ad revenue from around the country. We're at least providing jobs around the country in a way that they're simply not, you know, at, at, at great scale, um, and um, and of course the, they also argue that we Jeff Bezos likes to himself likes to argue very much about the fact that he's created all this wealth. Um, there's a scene in the book where he's sitting there with David Rubenstein, 
um, in Washington at this gala dinner in 2018. And they're kind of joking about just how wealthy Bezos is. And, and, and he, he talks about how, yes, I'm super wealthy, but, but I've created all this wealth for all these shareholders. Um, the, the problem with the, you know, the, the, the sort of argument that we're creating all these jobs all around the country is that it, what it overlooks, of course, is that these jobs are not, there's a context. Um, these jobs are not completely um, new jobs, bonus, you know, pluses on the ledger. Um, they're, they're, they are replacing a whole swath of, of other jobs that, that have gone by the wayside. Um, the job of the retail salesperson, brick and mortar retail salesperson has been the hardest hit, you know, in the country these last few years, worse than newspaper reporters, worse than coal miners. Um, and so what you essentially have seen happen in a lot of communities is that the job of the retail salesperson is gone and that person is now replaced by a warehouse worker. And, and in some cases, the retail, retail person has gone to work as the warehouse worker. And, and the warehouse jobs might or might not be better paying than the retail job, kind of depends on probably on what kind of retail job we're talking about, how senior the person was. But in any case, no matter what, those, retail, those warehouse jobs are definitely more physically strenuous, definitely more, more um, uh, sort of draining and taxing on a daily basis than the retail work was, definitely more isolating, um, uh, more socially atomized. And in a sense, those new jobs resemble where, um, resemble assembly line work, factory work, more than they do retail work, but they're not paid as well as, as, as manufacturing work still is in this country. So it's like a new, whole new form of work we've created, a new form of mass employment that is, that is tougher than the retail work it's replaced, but it's not paid as well as the factory work that it more greatly resembles. And you had a bunch of conversations with those warehouse workers. What did they tell you about what it's like to, to work at Amazon in these warehouses? Oh, it's, they, they, it's just incredibly strenuous and, and, and draining. And there's a reason why, there's a reason why the turnover in these jobs is just so extreme. I mean, a lot of these warehouses, like the one in Bessemer, Alabama, that just had the election, we're looking at, you know, roughly hundred percent turnover in a given year. Um, so very few people are lasting more than a year. There was a, the, the man I opened the book with who's working outside at a warehouse outside Denver, um, uh, guy in his, guy in his you know, late, late, late middle age who started there after losing his tech job, um, started in the summer of 19. He was the only member of his early, his training cohort of 20 people who was still there a year later, only one out of, out of, out of 15 or 20. Um, and because the, it's just, you are, um, you're going all the time. The pressure, the, 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 perform, the production demands are just extraordinary. You're, you're constantly being, you're co have, constantly having to hit these incredibly ambitious goals for whatever your job is, whether you're picking or packing or stowing or driving a forklift, bringing in pallets, whatever it might be. Um, and you're being incredibly closely monitored. Um, so as soon as you start to, to slip on your rate, you're gonna you're gonna um, you're gonna have a supervisor coming to to to, to get on you about it. Um, just this, you know, the algorithms are you know the, the tracking and the algorithms to make sure to 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 make sure that you're measuring up to these ambitious goals are incredibly aggressive. Um, you have you have just the you know the one half hour break and then the two 15 minute breaks in a given 10 or 12 hour shift. Often not you know famously not enough. For, for guys that people have to use the bathroom um, more often, it takes you a long time just to get across that warehouse floor. Um, it's, it's very, very isolating work. I mean, you just, you, one reason that the union efforts have been so, so difficult to get going, organizing efforts is that there's so little, um, it's so hard to build solidarity when you barely know the people you're working with. Um, I have a, the, the sort of core chapter of the book is the, is the chapter about Sparrows Point uh, outside Baltimore, place that used to hold the biggest steel mill in the world and it's now um, now become a massive logistics business park with now three Amazon warehouses in this in this one business park and and I just described how this one man went from working at the steel mill for 30 years doing this incredibly dangerous work um, and um, difficult work and then went to work at the Amazon warehouse um, after the steel mill was just wiped off the face of the earth and he found the warehouse work so much harder. It was less dangerous, of course, 
but it was so much more isolating. He felt so much less meaning. It was way less paid. It was paid a third as much as his steel job was paid. Um, and he only lasted a couple of years at the warehouse job after putting in three decades uh, at the steel mill. It's just yeah, a, yeah. It's a tough kind of work. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears for a second and talk about taxes. I mean, here we have one of the world's uh, most valuable companies run by, I guess, the last I heard, the world's wealthiest man. How are they contributing to local communities? Are they, are they paying their taxes? Are they, are they supporting the communities and the country in which they're operating in? They're not. I mean, that's, that's such a core issue. And, I, and, I, and it kind of carries through the book, um, the, issue of, the issue of taxation. And, it, and I mean, we have to be honest about this. It's been built into the company's success from the very beginning. It's very founding that the whole notion of avoiding taxes um, and trying to keep the tax bill down, and and initially, of course, it was done by 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 avoiding having to assess sales taxes. Their initial huge advantage over bookstore, physical bookstores was that they didn't have to Amazon didn't have to assess sales taxes on on sales, so immediately got a five, six, seven percent edge on on its rivals, and it did so by um, by making sure that it. By, by thinking very carefully about where it placed its initial warehouses. Um, one of the big reasons that the company went to Seattle uh, in the first place where Jeff Bezos had no personal ties, while they set up in Seattle, instead of going to the Bay Area, to Silicon Valley, as you one might have expected from a new tech company, is that, is that they didn't want to have to assess sales tax on the biggest market in the country, California. So it made more sense to go to a smaller state like Washington State. Um, and then as years went, as, as the company grew, they were very careful about not putting warehouses in big states because that meant having to assess sales taxes on, on people in that state. So Ohio, for instance, didn't get a warehouse until not that long ago um, because they didn't want to put, have to assess sales taxes on the eighth biggest state in the country. Um, the, so now, now that they're, they have this, now that they're so big and have this promise of one or two day delivery, they kind of, they have to have the warehouses everywhere. So they've, given up the, the whole game of avoiding sales tax assessment. Now the key is avoiding taxes in other forms. And, and the, at the local level, it's all about demanding huge subsidies from towns and towns and cities and counties when they go in and build a warehouse. And, and, and basically just as a matter of course, extracting these massive subsidies, property tax subsidies, payroll tax subsidies, when they go in to build a warehouse or a data center. They have an entire department of the company devoted to it. It's called the Division of Economic Development, which is very amusing because that's what, of course, what it's called at the, at the local government level. The people who they're working with who are giving them tax subsidies work in economic development. So Amazon calls its tax subsidy seeking unit the, you know, economic development. Um, what's so especially confounding about these huge subsidies that they're getting at the local level is A, that they're... Um, that it means that the local communities are less able to pay for the services that Amazon is going to put more pressure on. You know, the roads that are going to get all the truck wear and tear, the EMTs that are going to have to come for all the, you know, sort of minor injuries at the warehouses. The, um, so you have th that kind of irony. And then there's the fact that these warehouses really do have to be in certain places now to fulfill, to, to fulfill the promise of, of delivery. And, and so it's not like the, the company doesn't actually have that much leverage. It's not like they can just go to Indiana if Ohio won't give them the tax um, subsidies. But but the communities just the governments are so feel, are so desperate, so eager for any kind of new big job announcement that they can make that they turn out that they fork over the money. So they avoid taxes at, in, in that way, very 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 consequential way. And then of course at the national level, like the other big 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 tech companies, they've become very adept at avoiding federal corporate income taxes with all the usual games, Luxembourg, et cetera. And um, to the point where just a couple of years ago, they had zero, zero federal corporate income tax payments. Um, last year was more like a billion, which of course just is a fraction of their revenues. It's worth noting that Walmart by contrast, you know, Walmart has all sorts of other things, you know, talk about the Walmart model, but it does pay a lot more in taxes, billions more in taxes and federal income taxes because it's harder for it to, to do the kind of Luxembourg game than for, for Amazon. Yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, and you tell me whether this is correct or not, 
when we as consumers support a company like Amazon, we're in a sense avoiding the contributions to our local infrastructure and our national and federal infrastructure and all of the things that we benefit from by the taxes that we pay. We're, we're participating in that scheme to a certain extent. Absolutely. I mean, there's, this, is, this, sits at the, this problem sits at the core of the chapter in the book that's set in El Paso, and it's a chapter about local small business. Um, and, it's a, and it's about these local uh, office supply companies, like the, the Dunder Mifflins of El Paso, just like that company in, in, in the TV show, um, 12, 15, 20 employees selling staplers and paper and printer cartridges to local businesses um, and school districts and city government and um, you know, proud of the service, the service they provide to all their local clients. And, and then Amazon comes in in that chapter and pressures both the, um, the local, their, their customers, the local governments and school districts and local businesses to start just buying all that stuff direct from Amazon. And then it goes to the local businesses and says, hey, just, just join the, the Amazon marketplace. Um, uh, you know, you'll, your customers can still just buy from you there. It'll just be more convenient for everyone. Um, and what that overlooks, of course, is that having Amazon in that middleman role, the Amazon marketplace, means that those local businesses are going to have to, if they're still getting making the sales to their local customers, are going to have to give up a cut of at least 15% to Amazon, to, um, you know, in commissions and various fees. Um, so that, so revenue that, um, that would have stayed completely local um, into the local business business in their, in their employees and their, their own coffers, and then also into local tax coffers, a sizable slice of that is going whoosh off to Seattle. And, and then, and that, and that's even assuming that the local, that the purchase is still made, made locally. If it's, if, if you're just buying an Amazon and, and your purchase is just from God knows where um, you have, you had no contribution whatsoever to um, really to 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 the local economy. I mean, you're you're. It's all it's all just everything about that transaction has been completely remote, and um, you know the, the only sort of local point of contact, local consequence, lo- is that is that is is the is I guess arguably the employment of the the folks at the at the warehouse down the road. And the driver who's coming to drop it off to you, but everything is just—it's all—it's seamless to the point of being completely removed from from your local local community. And then, so and then the revenue again is flowing is flowing to Seattle and Bezos instead of sticking locally in any kind of way. So both the American Sustainable Business Council and Social Venture Circle are very focused on public policy. Are there public policy interventions that can help address these challenges that you're identifying? There are. I mean, the, the book is is a narrative portrait of this of of what, what of the country, and is and is not a you know argument book or a thesis book, and it does not have a solutions chapter. But it does leave you with um, a couple implicit um, conclusions. You know, I think for most readers about what what needs to be done. The biggest of them is probably that we do need to have some kind of a serious conversation right now about about antitrust and whether whether some of these giants have gotten too big and dominant for the good of our country and whether we're back at a moment like we were a century ago with the standard oils of you know of that of that time and 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 a century ago we decided as a country that we needed to do something about this and we and we broke up a lot of these giants and reined them in and and um and and you know I think it's generally believe that that was believe that, that was a good thing and then um, and then over the decades of the 20th century we we greatly sort of slackened our approach to to monopoly and antitrust to the point where we're now in this in this in this moment now and so there's a big debate happening in Washington now about what to do about this and there are different solutions proposals being you know offered and. And it does seem like there's some real ferment around this and that even room for bipartisan consensus um, of possibly. And, and um, so that, that's, that's the overarching one, that, that, we, that one reason, you know, again, that one reason we've ended up with this incredible concentration of our economy in certain places is that the economy has just gotten so concentrated in certain companies. 
Um, but then there, there are some other solutions too. Um, the, I mean, for one thing, local governments, you know, can be much, um, should, ought to be much tougher about in their negotiations with, with, with the company um, when it's coming in, dangling the, the plum of a, of a data center or a warehouse and, and realize that their negotiating position is, is probably stronger than they realize and, and not be so obsequious, certainly not be so obsequious about, um, about offering secrecy. That's the other thing that came through um, in my reporting just again and again, the company demanding extreme uh, secrecy and lack of transparency from local governments and local governments being willing to provide that, um, in, you know, in ways that make it really hard to just have basic kind of democratic accountability of what's been going on. Um, so, so I, yeah, I think the big ones would be at the, at the national level, the big issue right now is antitrust. And then at the, at the local and state level, it's, it's about, um, you know, getting getting tougher on the on, on the tax front, and also on the, of course, on the on, on just on the on the workhouse on the warehouse condition front. Just with making sure that we're doing that that regulators are doing as much as they can on that front to to make sure that 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 the work is is safe and not and not too uh, inhuman. Oh, thank you. you're muted, Jeffrey. <laughs> That's so related to the news we just heard about Amazon buying MGM Studios for $9 billion. Is this a, a effort to create a monopoly in a new area? Um, it's, uh, I think the, one, the best way to think of it is not so much trying to create monopoly, a monopoly in, in a new area as trying to just create this extraordinary, overall extraordinary dominance um, that that where you where your 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 huge sway in in, in each area, um, in a sense, um, even if you don't have a strictly monopoly in, in that given area, even if you're still there's still a couple couple big rivals that you're dealing with in that area, that you're able to that your position your strong position in one area strengthens even further strengthens your position in another. Um, so the, and they, they kind of and that's that's the that's the main that's one of the big arguments of the the kind of the camp the antitrust expert camp now that is arguing that we've become that this is a problem that that that's no longer enough just to think about whether prices whether prices are low that that that's the, always been the, the main metric for determining if we have a monopoly it was well are prices still low if they're if they're still low then what's the big deal it's it's good for the consumer. Um, you know, Google and Facebook offer their service for free. What's the problem? Amazon, um, you know, sells a lot of stuff, cheap stuff in their site cheaply. What's the problem? Um, and and the, the, this this new emerging argument that was you know, articulated best by Lena Khan, this young law student um, who's now nominated to the FTC by Biden, is that the com- it's the company's Amazon's incredible dominance across all these other various sectors that that allows it to develop this a distorting kind of power um, be precisely because it has, because it is so dominant in so many different realms. I mean, it, it almost gets starts looking a little bit like, of course, like the, like the conglomerates of, you know, of the sort of mid century. Um, so uh, yeah, that was, an, it was, that was a really striking um, piece of news. And one, one specific way that the dominance in one way of court realm aids, aids their dominance. In another is, is very basic, which is, the cloud, their Amazon Web Services, their hugely successful, you know, cloud arm, um, is, has been so profitable that it has, um, and, and there they are hugely dominant. Although you know Microsoft is, is trying to catch up, but they are so profitable there that it allows them, in a sense, to 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 underprice on the retail side, thereby further building their dominance in e-commerce because they don't have to rely on the e-commerce, the, the main retail site for as much in, in revenues because the profits coming from the cloud have been so huge. Right. So let me just ask you one more question and then we're gonna turn it uh, to the audience and uh, hopefully our audience members uh, will, will share some questions they have on their mind. But let's just return to something that you started with, which is this labor issue uh, you know, there was an attempt to unionize one of the warehouse facilities that didn't succeed. 
what what can be done to try to improve the conditions for the, I guess, hundreds, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that are working under these very, very stressful conditions? The, I mean, the, the organizing fight is the main, is the, is the main uh, front there. Um, and it's going to continue even after the loss in Bessemer. I mean, we have to kind of take the long view here and realize that, that fights against big, powerful employers like Amazon are, are not easy. They take a very long time. I mean, going back to the, I think about this very much in historical terms, you know, in that, that chapter I had on the, on the steel mill in Baltimore, like it took, wasn't until 1941 that they organized uh, that steel mill. Um, and, it, you know, and it really kind of took the war in a way to, to bring pressure on the company to allow an election to be held. Um, and, um, and so you had this years there where that work at the mill was incredibly low paid and, you know, incredibly demanding. Um, you know, we had these plutocratic owners that were building massive mansions all over the country. And, um, and now we're, you know, in a way back to square one Now that exact same piece of land where the steel mill is gone. You've got warehouses with workers that are not being paid enough, incredibly demanding jobs, no union, um, very, you know, the plutocratic owners with mansions all over the country. And now a five, was it a $500 million yacht or $200 million yacht that he's building himself now. And, um, and so we're kind of back to that moment and, and, but, it, but it will take a while. And, and I think you're going to keep seeing various unions trying to, trying to organize, not just trying to organize, you know, necessarily a, a full new chapter, because we know how tough that is, but, but they're going to keep having uh, walkouts, sit down strikes, whatnot, to draw attention to the conditions. And, and really the fight is really about, so there's so much talk about the pay, right? But, and Amazon has, did raise pay from 13 to 15 now just recently announced that it's going to give a little extra bump to some existing workers, but that's not really the issue. The issue is the, is the, is the conditions on the job. It's that extraordinary pressure on the job that, um, that makes, makes people last, you know, barely, barely last a year on, on average. And, and perhaps, you know, it's possible that, that this labor shortage we're experiencing now around the country um, becomes so extreme that, that Amazon decides that it ha it has to make the jobs less crazy in order to to get the workers they need. That you know that that might happen. One of the things oh, I had, I'm not sure that it's true, is that when they increased the hourly wages up to fifteen dollars, they took away some of the stock options that those workers had previously had. And for some workers, that seemed to more than offset the increase in hourly wages. Is that in fact true? That is true. And they, they, they claim that they try to do something some months later to address that problem. Um, whether they did or not, um, the, this, is a big, this is a big, big issue. And sort of, if you step back and just think about it, in the book, I mentioned the fact that comparison with Sears and, 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 and the fact that Sears did, you know, over the years, you know, it's sort of prime glory years, give a lot of, um, a lot of equity to workers. And, and that, and I forget the exact number, but I think that if Amazon had given workers um, roughly the same amount of, of equity as Sears did, um, one, one person pointed out that it would, I think the average worker would be looking at something like 300 grand right now. And in, in, in in stake, um, and and I asked the company about this actually, and they said they they said they insisted that they've just they thought about doing that over over the years, but they that they that their workers made clear to them that they preferred higher pay than 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 equity stakes. Um, and I don't know whether we can take their word on that. Yeah, certainly one of the things that we are big advocates of are employee ownership and the critical role that employee ownership can pay, play in uh, addressing the incredible income disparities we have. So I was quite disappointed to see Amazon back off from that policy. Let's take a moment uh, and turn to Isaac, who is going to moderate some questions from the audience for Alec. 
Uh, Isaac, do we have some questions? Yeah. Well, and, you know, this is related um, to the conversation around labor and I'm reflecting on, you know, your book when um, you spoke about how, you know, some of the forklift drivers were legally blind um, and it just remarkable (laughs) in terms of those conditions. So we've got questions on, you know, what, what types of reforms would really help those working at a company like Amazon? And perhaps is shareholder activism, is there a role for shareholder activism? What, what can be done to help improve those conditions for those outside the company? Oh boy. Um, I, mean, I do think that there's, there's, there is room for, um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I think actually at the federal, you know, labor uh, regulators are are thinking of ways to 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 do more on this front. To uh, some kind of um, some kind of regulations around productivity demands, and to, to somehow um, somehow rein them in or rationalize them somehow to so that um, so the workers are not facing the situation of just things of, of just ever ever being rationed up, upward. Um, in, in, in Europe, for instance, the at the Amazon warehouses warehouses in Europe, and I, I think specifically in Germany, there's there are there there are some limits on on sort of on what on what the company can demand in terms of basic productivity on rate. Um, there are limits on just how much you can ratchet up the rate and how much you can discipline around rate um, in in Germany. So that would be that would be one possible area. I mean, that would be a big step, and the Amazon would fight that. You know, fight that um, just vigorously because that is really at the core of of their whole model. It's just this extreme speed, rate, efficiency to, to so to, so that they can promise us, the consumer, the one and two day promise of delivery for every damn thing that we've that we that we've that we've that we've, that we've uh, sought from them. So that would be that would be a big deal if the if regulators were to, to were to take that step. Um, and, and, if, and if regulators are not going to take that step, then then it really is going to fall to the workers through organizing to try to 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 win more control on that front. And and for that to happen, you know, I didn't mention this before when we we're talking about the organizing. But one reason organizing is so tough in this country is that the laws really are slanted against organizing. They happen since Taft Hartley, and there's a reason why we're down to six percent unionization in the private sector right now. And there are these Constantly, there are these bills up to make it, you know, to somehow even the playing ground more. Um, the latest one's called the PRO Act. It's sitting in the House, past the House, and, you know, it's facing a Senate filibuster um, just, just the way that the, its predecessor bill did back in 2010. So, um, so that's, that's the other big front. Like, if you want organizers, workers to gain, to gain these better conditions through, through their own organizing, it's probably going to mean passing something like the PRO Act. Thank you. And we, we have another question that's come in on the consumer approach. And, you know, I'm also reflecting on um, the first part of your book as you talk about the, the landscape that COVID created um, in terms of consumer behavior and obviously feeling some individual shame in my role in that um, sort of reading that flip side. So Brett asked a question, how how do you advise consumers approach the need to shop locally, but maybe also stay within a reasonable budget? Are there, are there folks doing work on this? Is there, do you have any recommendations from um, research that you've done? So my, my general, you know, thinking on this front on the consumer front is, is that it's all in a way about moderation, right? Like what happened I, I haven't been advocating a boycott. I haven't been a- advocating cold turkey. I occasionally use Amazon, you know, very occasionally for a book I can't find elsewhere, or you know, maybe some some immediate whim of a child, you know. But but in general, I have managed to 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 moderate, like, and and just I just not to go overboard. And what happened is what happened last year in this country was that we just went overboard. Like it was just wild. Amazon was already huge, was already, you know, we already had hundred million prime households in this country and all that. And, and, and yet, and sales went up 45% over the year, right? They had, that's why they hired, had to hire 400,000 more people. They had to 
expand the warehouse space by 50%, and Bezos' personal wealth shot up $58 billion in the year. And, and it's because we just embraced that one-click model with total alacrity. Like, there were, if, if we'd had you know, feel some feeling of guilty about it before, now it was not just an absence of guilt, but it was like almost a sense of virtue, right? That you were like flattening the curve by, by buying all this stuff online. And, and so it just seems really important that, that we in general kind of come off of that extreme and, and moderate and, 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 and return to our own physical communities, not just, not just with our shopping, but in all these other facets of life, you know, with going back to the theater, back to the movies, um, not just Netflix and Amazon prime and, 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 you know, just back to the, back to restaurants and not just Grubhub and, and just, you know, supporting, getting back out of, into the world and supporting the physical places in which we live. And um, because that's what's so at risk here with that full one click model um, is just this utter, just this complete hunkering down and, and atomizing and dissolution of, 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 you know, our ties to, the community. I mean, I'm no, I'm no great, you know, fan of the shopping mall or the, or the strip plaza, but at least there is some social contact there. And again, the, some of that money is staying there. So it's, you know, as far as places that are, um, you know, to turn to for help in this regard, there's a great organization called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. It's been there. It's been around for several decades now. Um, and it advocates for, you know, local community, local business, um, it's very politically, you know, sort of interesting. It's, it's kind of cuts across the spectrum. Um, and, um, and it's uh, a woman by the name of Stacy Mitchell there has been one of the strongest voices on this problem. And it's, you know, it was definitely a, um, a, a, a key source for me on the book. Um, so I would, I would suggest they have a lot of stuff on their site, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Thank you. And we have a question from Carrie going a little bit of a different direction on what do you think the chances are of antitrust legal challenges actually taking root and, and creating some impact? Um, I think there's quite good chances now. And I, I would actually hazard that the chances of progress on that front um, are, are probably bigger than, than chances of a warehouse organizing anytime soon. Um, is there, there is real ferment in Washington around this, both um, at the agency's level um, where you have, you know, the Lena Khans um, coming in and, and, then, and then at the, um, in Congress too, where you have, you know, legislation various, for various companies at various levels that is, that is kind of coming through the pipeline right now. Um, what's, you know, and then, and then you also have, um, you're, you're, you have some of the existing, the Google and Facebook cases that are already, you know, of course, under, underway. Um, and then all the state actions um, uh, being, being undertaken. Just yesterday, the D.C. Turn, um, Attorney General announced a case against Amazon over, over pricing. Um, so there's a lot on that, going on on that front. And, the, and the, the really fascinating thing here is the, is the politics of it. The fact that you have, um, first of all, the fact that you have the, some on the right who are now willing to consider antitrust action, partly because they're, um, they have their own motivations. They're upset about Google and Facebook and what they see as sort of censorship of the right by, by those companies. And so, so they are at least seemingly open to some kind of action. And then on the left, you have this really interesting thing going on where you have the, this rift between the general democratic affinity for Silicon Valley that's been going on for years, the revolving door of all the Obama people that went to Silicon Valley, all the money that comes from Silicon Valley to the Democrats, um, the general democratic sort of voter consumer affinity for, for Amazon. Um, but then, um, but then mixed in with that, you have now these voices, the Elizabeth Warrens and Lena Khans and um, who are, you know, who are speaking Bernie Sanders and, and a whole bunch of others who are speaking out uh, against, against the giants and, 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 and Joe Biden seemingly, willing to consider a break from the Obama laxness on this front. So watching this, we really need to see how that debate within the left plays out. Thank you. And we have perhaps 
one or two more quick attendee questions um, before I turn it back over to you, Jeffrey. Um, we have a question. Um, what if, if you're comfortable sharing, sort of, have you received any pushback um, from, from individuals since releasing your book? Individuals, businesses, have you, have you been getting any blowback? Um, well, the only uh, official blowback I got from the company was about a month in Jay Carney, um, you know, who's the, their chief uh, public policy guy, influence guy, um, formerly of the Obama White House and formerly of Time Magazine. Um, he fired off a letter to the Times Book Review um, uh, critiquing a positive review of the book, so indirectly critiquing the book. Um, and you can look that up if you'd like. And his, you know, the main arguments were, why are you, why are you being, you know, so hard on us for creating all these jobs? Um, and, and also, um, we, we are, um, we're helping all these small businesses because, because so much, many of our sales now are third-party sales from small businesses. And the much greater employment and the much greater use of third-party sales on the site are very much in my book because they are themselves meant to show just the extraordinary growth and dominance. And the fact that the reason why Amazon has so many third-party sales on the site now, it's not, it's not altruistic. It's, that, it's not because they care about small businesses. It's because they make so much more money off those sales than they do from their traditional um, sort of wholesale retail model. So that's why they've been pushing for the growth of those sales. It's just it's so, so lucrative for them. So that was the, that was the main pushback from the company. Um, and then um, otherwise, you know, there's, there's certain – there are certain points um, here and there that I'll, you know, both left and right. Um, I think the left, some folks on the left have, have um, somewhat, somewhat bristled at my pointing out the kind of the awkwardness of the, our current situation now, which is that the Democratic Party is, at, as I argue in the, in the epilogue, at risk of becoming kind of a, um, a an, an Amazon coalition, a mix of like all these high upper income, highly educated, blue metro consumers, and then the people who deliver stuff to them, the mostly black and brown people who deliver stuff to them. And that's awkward. And I, I've gotten some, you know, there's some friction around that. And then there's also some friction on the left around my suggestion that, that, um, that we really need to worry about the left behind cities. A lot of people in the big blue metros that are doing really well don't really see the problem with a lot of other cities struggling. They just basically think we need to build a lot more housing in the winter cities to make them more affordable. Um, but that we shouldn't worry so much about, about the left behind cities that in sense that, that they're, they are simply victims of market forces and tough luck. Thank you. And so a final attendee question um, and try to get to as many as possible. So, so sorry if we um, missed a couple. Um, there's a question from Sue um, talking about uh, the postal service and how they're serving many of the furthest deliveries, Amazon typically handling some of the more central ones um, and the negotiations that don't necessarily protect the postal service. If in any of your research, did you dig in on the relationship with the postal service and any Anything you might want to share on on that relationship and yeah, sure. I I I chose there were some areas that I chose decided I just didn't have the the time or the space to go deep into it. Was Amazon, of course, is so sprawling that so I you know I didn't get into drones, for instance, um, and I didn't get that much into the the, the postal service. Uh, you know the, those numbers and which are that's a real issue and one of the you know, the postal service's big challenges has been you know the Amazon the Amazon threat and the fact that Amazon. Um, you know, that the, the sort of the, the, the discount rate that, that Amazon has gotten and, and, and all that. Um, I would just say on this point that, that one of the big things coming in the next few years is the fact that Amazon is clearly trying to take over, um, the, you know, the delivery industry in general, that it's, it's, it's built up its whole entire massive network, all those trucks you see, planes, ships, everything, not just to deliver its own stuff, but clearly... Um, because it wants to knock out UPS and FedEx and, you know, and UPS, USPS in general, in, in the general delivery realm. It's, that's, it's trying to become a B player in that whole front as well. Thank you, Jeffrey. Let's turn it back over to you. And you're muted. 
of that pesky little mute button that I keep forgetting about. So thank you so much, Alec. I guess before we all rush out and buy your book at our local independent bookstore or online bookstores like Powell's in uh, Portland, uh, because there are some good online booksellers that, that, that I love, uh, anything that you would leave our business leaders and investors with to uh, guide them as they think about building and investing in their own businesses so that they can be part of the solution to these challenges? Sure. Um, I would just stress again the, the notion that I began this book with, which is that the, 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 the regional disparities in our country are really unhealthy that, and that anything we can do, including as a, as a business owner, to try to, to address them, to, to really think twice about whether it's possible to set up that, you know, that new branch um, that invest, you know, make, make that investment decision in a place that could really use it in a way that, that Amazon chose not to do when they decided to put their second headquarters in what was already the wealthiest city in the country, um, Washington, D.C., instead of you know, thinking about other places where, you, where in one false swoop, you really could have made a kind of rebalancing um, of our national economic landscape. Um, I just, I'm such a big believer in these places that, that have been left behind. They still have so much to offer a lot of them. And, and I just, and, and of course, a lot of them are hugely more affordable. Um, and, and so anything we can start to do as, as Americans and business investors to think about that, those disparities and that imbalance, because right now things are so off kilter um, and, and you'd be doing such good for the country if you were willing to take a chance on, on some town or city that, that, that has the time being been left behind. Thank you so much, Alec. This has been a wonderful conversation. You've written an really important and insightful book that we, Isaac and I want to encourage everyone who's listening to buy uh, and read because these are really critical issues of our time. They address many of the challenges that are facing our country and our economy. And uh, you shed great insight into those important challenges. So thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you for our audience for participating. And uh, we eagerly await your next topic. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. It was really, really meaningful. That was award-winning author Alec McGillis and ASBN's Jeffrey Hollander. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And a special thank you to our guests for participating in today's episode of the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast. And of course, thank you to our partner and sponsor, Hanson Bridget. Learn more at HansonBridget.com. And don't forget, don't forget to subscribe to the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. ASBN's vision is a sustainable economy that is stakeholder-driven, regenerative, just, and prosperous. Visit us at asbnetwork.org and consider joining the movement. I'm Isaac Graves. Thanks for listening.